Hamlet Podcast, Episode 23. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Conor Hanrity. I apologise that the podcast is online a little late today. There's some kind of ghost in my machine and I've recorded it three times and each of them has sounded worse. So hopefully this one will be acceptable. We'll give it a shot. Now that Macduff has gone off stage to wake the king as arranged... Macbeth and Lennox are left behind, looking at each other. Shakespeare gives us a weirdly brilliant piece of small talk as the two nobles try to find things to say to each other in this strange little interim. There's room for an awkward pause here, but eventually Lennox speaks first. He asks, Goes the king hence today? Of course he does. That's why Macduff is here. They made a plan. Macbeth answers this rather unnecessary question. He does. He did a point so. For us in the audience, there's a little jolt here. The king is definitely leaving. In fact, he's already gone. So Macbeth shifts into the past tense. He did a point so. He was planning to go. Now Lennox describes how the evening passed for those not at Macbeth's party. He explains, The night has been unruly. Where we lay, our chimneys were blown down, and, as they say, lamentings heard in the air. Strange screams of death, and prophesying with accents terrible, of dire combustion and confused events new hatched to the woeful time. The obscure bird clamoured the live-long night. Some say the earth was feverous and did shake. Shakespeare fans and listeners might remember that such portents in the weather have been known to accompany other shocking murders. In Julius Caesar, for example, we get a description of several crazy things happening in Rome's skies and streets just before Julius Caesar is stabbed to death. And these are so memorable that Shakespeare also reminds us of them in the first scene of Hamlet. And now strange things are happening in Scotland, too. As Lennox describes it, the night has been unruly. Where he and his fellows slept, the chimneys were blown down, the wind was so strong. He tries to put a euphemistic spin on things, saying that, as they say, lamentings were heard in the air. In case that wasn't evocative enough, he gets more specific. He says that they heard strange screams of death. Hearing such things in the night is always alarming. What follows in his speech has been subject to debate in various editions of the text. We don't quite know whether there should be full stops, colons, commas or semicolons to break it up, but I'm quite drawn to a theory that suggests that this is just a long sentence all about the owl. We've already heard the owl shriek while the crickets cried, and I think there's something quite pleasing about Shakespeare bringing Lennox on to tell us, quite innocently from his perspective, that he heard such grim noises too. If we take the sentence as a long idea, broken up by commas, it goes something like this. He heard strange screams of death, and prophesying, with accents terrible of dire combustion and confused events new hatched to the woeful time, the obscure bird clamoured the live-long night. Taken like this, it's the owl, the obscure bird, that has clamoured or shrieked all night, 
prophesying with accents terrible of dire combustion and confused events new hatched to the woeful time. As weather reports go, this is pretty bad. Accents terrible implies a range of awful sounds, of terrible ways that this bad night shrieked its way along. Prophecies of things exploding or burning their way into existence. Dire combustion. Confused events happening, breaking out or hatching like birds or snakes in this woeful time. Unruly, terrible, dire, confused, woeful. It's rare for a speaker to get this many adjectives in a single speech. A close reading also encourages a comparison between the temple-haunting martlet that Duncan spotted, a bird driven to nest in places of great peace, and this shrieking, obscure owl, a bird of doom and evil that has clamoured all night long. There's a further irony to Lennox saying the word live long, while we all stand around waiting for Macduff to come back on and tell us what he's seeing, possibly right now. Because, after all, through that live-long night, Duncan did not survive. To cap this dreadful weather report, Lennox describes that others have mentioned that the earth was feverous and did shake. Earthquakes are likewise portents of great doom, signals of terrible unrest beneath the surface. All of this description is left hanging. Lennox concludes his speech only halfway through a line. Macbeth is given a brilliant response, a perfect piece of euphemism and understatement. He completes the line with just four more syllables. "'Twas a rough night." Lennox agrees, explaining that he cannot remember the like of it. "'My young remembrance cannot parallel a fellow to it.' This gives us a sense that perhaps Lennox is a younger man, but of course an older actor could have a very charming spin on it, and his young remembrance could come at any age. This small talk has gone on for long enough, and now Macduff reappears, utterly and understandably distraught. He exclaims, Oh, horror, horror, horror! Tongue nor heart cannot conceive nor name thee. This kind of repetition is great for an actor. There are countless ways to interpret the repetition, the dismay, the anger, you name it. And of course he can direct these horrors to different places on the stage, or indeed different characters standing on it. And Shakespeare goes from this simplicity to a more sophisticated rhetorical device known as an anti-metabole, whereby ideas are repeated in successive phrases, but in reverse order. I have some fun examples that I'll put on the show notes on the website, but the most memorable and easy example of this device is from the witches earlier in the play. Fair is foul, and foul is fair. Here, Macduff's version is more expansive. Tongue and heart are put in the first part of his line, but to give character to his confusion, what tongue and heart cannot do is given in the wrong order. Technically, tongue could not name and heart could not conceive this horror, but instead the line says, Tongue nor heart cannot conceive nor name thee. Both Macbeth and Lennox respond. They both say, What's the matter? Here again is another chance for a difference in how Macbeth and Lennox respond, and of course, perhaps they don't even have to say it together, but obviously from now on, Macbeth will have to give the performance of his life. Macduff continues and begins to explain. 
Confusion now hath made his masterpiece. Most sacrilegious murder hath broke ope the Lord's anointed temple, and stole thence the life of the building. Masterpiece was a relatively new word at the turn of the 17th century. It had a positive connotation. A masterpiece was something that was the work of a master, a crowning achievement in a life's body of work. But instead, after this unruly night, it is confusion that has made his masterpiece. Again here we're getting ideas and concepts presented as active figures personified. Confusion is followed directly with the actions of murder. And not just murder, but sacrilegious murder. This is a crime against the king and against God. Already we've heard Macbeth's own misgivings about how bad it is to kill a king, and now, in his horror, we see Macduff's appalled response to the deed. His thoughts continue in a rather jumbled manner, even though it's a highly sophisticated jumble. Shakespeare puts two separate biblical images into Macduff's speech, blending them in the one image. On its own, this image is very strong. Macduff is saying that murder, like a thief, has broken into the Lord's anointed temple and stolen from it the very life of the building. But it's also a blend of two separate quotations. From the first book of Samuel, there's a line that says, I will not put forth mine hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. And from the second letter to the Corinthians, there's another line that says, Ye are the temple of the living God. This is in direct reference to how David could not bring himself to injure King Saul. Shakespeare neatly blends these two phrases, both of which come from biblical examples of characters not harming their kings. Their echoes heighten the awful nature of Duncan's murder. Bad enough that anyone should be murdered like this, but for it to be the king is extremely shocking. On top of all of this, there's also a sense that Macduff is equating Duncan with the blessed sacrament in a church. And by extension, for someone to murder him in his bed is as much of an abomination as it would be to break into a church and steal consecrated bread and wine from the tabernacle. It would be a scandalous sin indeed. Most sacrilegious murder hath broke ope the Lord's anointed temple and stole thence the life of the building. We really can't overestimate how intense the feeling must still have been in London when this play premiered, so soon after the planned attack on their actual king was foiled. Now that Macduff knows what has happened, Macbeth has to tread lightly and act surprised, and most important, do the right thing next. First, he asks, what is to say, the life? Throughout this scene, Macbeth seems to be finishing other people's lines, often with dull or matter-of-fact ordinary responses. This one is a risky one for the actor, because if he misjudges it, he could get a very nervous laugh from the audience. The life of the building. What can Macduff mean? Murder. Helpfully, Lennox has a question too, and he says, I mean you his majesty. Poor Lennox doesn't get the best lines. The trick seems to be to deliver these questions quickly so that nobody looks stupid and we can keep the focus on Macduff and the information that he's bringing. He continues, but frankly he can't describe it himself. He says, Approach the chamber and destroy your sight with a new gorgon. Do not bid me speak. See and then speak yourselves. 
Macduff is telling the others to go and see for themselves, approach the chamber, and destroy your sight with a new gorgon. A gorgon was a mythical Greek creature, usually female, who had snakes for hair. The most famous of the gorgons was Medusa, and their most famous aspect was that looking directly at them would turn the viewer to stone. Here Macduff is implying that the sight of Duncan now is a comparably petrifying horror that will destroy their sight when they look on it. Not long ago, Macbeth said, I am afraid to think what I have done. Look on it again, I dare not. Here Macduff can't process it. He begs, do not bid me speak. See, and then speak yourselves. So this is an act that clearly confounds the senses. But now Macbeth doesn't have a choice and has to go and look on it again, whether he dares or not. So he and Lennox go into the chamber. Left alone on stage, Macduff raises the alarm. He shouts, Awake! Awake! Ring the alarm bell! Murder and treason! Banquo and Donalbane, Malcolm, awake! Shake off this downy sleep, death's counterfeit, and look on death itself. Up, up, and see the great doom's image. Malcolm, Banquo, as from your graves rise up and walk like sprites to countenance this horror, ring the bell. Macduff's verse is very neat. There are almost no extra syllables. Even if he cannot process what he's seen, he's springing into efficient, precise action. And this is yet another way that he is a counterpoint and an opposite to Macbeth. He calls for the alarm bell to be rung. Unlike the one that invited Macbeth, this is the one to ring when the castle is under attack and everyone needs to hear it. Quite rightly too. Regardless of the general hangover, there's now been a case of murder and treason because it is the murder of the king. Macduff needs everyone. Banquo, Donalbane, Malcolm and everyone else. And yet another neat echo of things we've heard already, he insists that everyone shake off their sleep. Downy, perhaps because of the soft down pillows they might be resting on, and he calls sleep death's counterfeit, since sometimes a person who is asleep looks like they're dead. Lady Macbeth and Macbeth himself have had uncomfortable reactions to this similarity already, while Macduff is entirely matter-of-fact. The difference between sleep and death is here and now, and they must sacrifice their sleep and come and look on death itself. In another parallel with Macbeth, Macduff here shows a comparable ability to take an image from the intimate and the immediate and let it expand to enormous proportions. We've just been given the image of all the people in the castle asleep on their downy pillows, and now he cries that they must come and look on the great doom's image. The apocalypse itself is what is upon them. Images of the apocalypse, the promised end, or the great doom, were a popular choice for liturgical artwork, since it was a reminder of what we all must come to. In King Lear there's a confusion when a character wonders whether he's seeing a painting of the apocalypse or the thing itself. But Macduff knows that what he's seen is real, and he's calling for everyone else to come and see it too. He calls Malcolm and Banquo again, the two senior ranking nobles other than Macbeth himself. And just in case we didn't get the apocalyptic vibe, he spins it a different way. As from your graves, rise up and walk like sprites to countenance this horror. 
He's calling on them to get out of their beds in the way that all will rise again at the last judgment, according to the Bible, and walk like sprites or returning spirits to look upon the horror of Duncan's assassination. This is incredibly intense imagery and very hard for an actor to pitch. Nobody wants Macduff to look like a drama queen wailing and running around ringing the bells, but at the same time he cannot underplay this extravagant and apocalyptic imagery. He ends his speech, again very fittingly, with a cry to ring the bell. I promised you a great many bells across this act, and this is another of them, a neat reminder of the knell for Duncan and the bell that called Macbeth to commit the crime. Next onto the scene, with freshly washed hands, will be Lady Macbeth, who has presumably been in her own quarters waiting for her cue from Macduff, but will save her appearance for the next episode. As always, the show notes for this week will go online at the website, thehamletpodcast.com. There's a page each for Hamlet and Macbeth, so you can easily find all the information that accompanies both series, and a whole lot more besides. Thank you very sincerely to quite a few of you who bought me a coffee last week. It's a lovely gesture, and while I never expect it, I really appreciate your generosity. It's always lovely to have your company in 153 countries and counting. It means the world to me that the podcast has reached so far, so please do continue to tune in, to share with your friends or your students, and let people know that you're enjoying it. There's plenty more excitement to come in this scene, and I'll be back with another episode next week. I hope you'll join me then.